I would say there's a fine line between perseverance and stubbornness. And I'm not sure if I crossed the line today. Um, I'm not sure if I should have called Ed and said, hey, do this for me. But uh, nonetheless, here we go. I guess Micah changed her mind. <clears throat> oh, she, Lily prevailed upon her. I see now. <laughs> Lily did not want to be alone. Completely understandable. John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34 is our text for this morning. The next day, he, referring to John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us this morning to receive your word as the Thessalonians did, not as if it were the word of man, but as the word of God. Help us to submit our minds, affections, and will to its authority. Help us to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ as he is revealed to us in the gospel, so that we might turn from our idols to serve you, the living and true God, through faith and in love. In the name of Christ, our Savior, through faith in His incarnation, obedience, death, and resurrection, we ask. Amen. As some of you may remember, that uh, this phrase, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, was a rather significant phrase for me. For it was uh, back in 1986 in January in my darkened room filled with overwhelming guilt and fear when I cried out to God for the first time. And I realized this, or I remembered rather, this phrase from the liturgy of my youth. I knew that there was no place else for me to go to receive forgiveness of sin but to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in that moment... I understood that much. Not much more, (laughs) but I understood that much. Over the 20 plus years that have transpired since 1986, wow, it's really going to be almost 30 years soon. (laughs) I'm getting old, okay? My understanding of that has deepened immensely, and yet I do not understand it as well as I could understand it. There's a lot that we find in Scripture, particularly in this text, that we don't understand as well as we could understand, perhaps as well as we should understand. That regardless of how we're approaching this text this morning, whether we're approaching it as someone who's a brand new Christian, someone who's perhaps trying to figure out what this Christianity thing is even about, 
or someone who has been in the faith for 30 or more years, we don't understand this as much as we could understand this. And so may God add to our understanding this morning. The big idea this morning is that <coughs> Jesus is the Spirit-empowered, sacrificial Son of God. Let's look at this in three ways this morning. <clears throat> the first way is that John reveals Jesus as a sacrificial lamb. <clears throat> this text begins with those words, the next day. Meaning, the day after the great inquisition uh, on, by the, on the behalf of the uh, uh, priests and Levites. John had been asked who he was. Was he the prophet? Was he the Christ? Uh, was he Elijah? Who was he? So this is the next day as this all transpires. Leon Morris, because you'll notice uh, as I talked with the men on Thursday night, we looked at this passage, we looked at some of the parallels. Uh, the very next passage we're doing next week, the next day. And then down in 43, the next day. Leon Morris picks up on this and recognizes that something is going on here, that there's something significant. And when you lay out the, the days that begin with the Inquisition and end with the wedding in Cana, you have seven days. And Leon Morris notes that this is probably meant to remind us, just as John 1.1 was reminded us of creation, this is meant to remind us of, allude, allude for us to the seven days of creation. Because something is happening. The recreation is beginning. This is significant in the mind of John as he writes his gospel. And he wants us to consider the recreation by Christ. So, the next day. Jesus is approaching John the baptizer and perhaps some of his disciples there because John is speaking to somebody and he says, Behold, or look, there, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's pointing out Jesus so others will take, will take notice of who he is. And <clears throat> if this was the modern day, he might have also put something on LinkedIn to endorse Jesus. Okay? <laughs> I'm I'm not sure how that really goes because sometimes I see what people endorse me for and I'm like, huh? His endorsements are true, are valid, are to the point, and significant. He's going to actually make three endorsements, so to speak, uh, of John the, of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> as we see in this text this morning. The first of which is that he is the Lamb of God, and for most of us. We jump immediately to Isaiah 53, and it's not just because we had it read this morning as part of our Old Testament scriptures. We also think perhaps of the scapegoat in Leviticus, but is that what John the Baptizer was thinking? Maybe not. Let's pause for a moment. <clears throat> Let's go back, so to speak, and see the things that, were, that John was saying as well as some of the things that John was familiar with. Let's start with what he was familiar with. There was a document called the Testament of Joseph. Now, <clears throat> it's an interesting document in that it's part of a series of testaments of all the twelve sons of Jacob. And within this one, the Testament of Joseph in chapter 19, we find this. And I saw that from Judah 
was born a virgin wearing a linen garment. And from her went forth a lamb. That's pretty interesting now, isn't it? Remember, this is not the Bible, but this predates John the Baptist. Without spot, and on his left hand there was, as it were, a lion. And all the beasts rushed against him, and the lamb overcame them and destroyed them and trod them underfoot. And because of him the angels rejoiced, and men, and all the earth. And these things shall take place in their season in the last days. Do ye therefore, my children, observe the commandments of the Lord, and honor Judah and Levi, for from them shall arise unto you the Lamb of God, by grace, saving all the Gentiles and Israel. Fascinating, isn't it? That such a thing would be written. This, as well as a similar passage in uh, 1 Enoch 90, create this identity not of a suffering lamb, but of a conquering lamb. Not a lamb who is meek and mild, but one who is strong and powerful and who would deal with the enemies of God. And so there's a sense, (coughs) excuse me, that perhaps John is not thinking of a sacrificial lamb, but that John is thinking of a lamb who is going to come and deal with the sins of the world, not in terms of expiating them, not removing them, not providing forgiveness, but in bringing judgment. Is that outlandish? Well, that's why I I had Jerry read from Matthew. Part of the message of John the Baptist was what? The axe is at the root. He's coming with his winnowing fork. He's going to come and baptize with fire. There was an element of judgment that John the Baptist expected in the coming of Messiah. And so for John the Baptist, I think that he was seeing Jesus as one who was going to rise up and defeat the enemies of God. Not so much one who's going to lie down and be nailed upon the cross. We see that Jesus did, in fact, the axe was at the root. We know that within one generation, in A.D. 70, God dealt in judgment with unbelieving Israel in the fall of Jerusalem. We know, of course, from reading the book of Revelation that Jesus is going to return and he is going to bring judgment upon the enemies of God. And so, in fact, he is sort of that warrior lamb that perhaps John the Baptizer thought about. But I think something else is at work here as well. In John chapter 11, John the, uh, the apostle records the words of Caiaphas the high priest at that time, who said that it is better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. And John notes that because he was the high priest that year, that God uh, prophesied through him, and so that he didn't even understand the words that he said. I mean, he understood them literally and grammatically and all that kind of stuff, but he didn't understand the import, the significance, the, the true meaning of these words. And so in a similar way, I think John the baptizer did not understand the fullness of what he said. He understood some of what he said, but not all 
of what he said. Because Jesus would indeed come to take away the sin of the world. He would lift it up. He would carry it. He would remove it. This could remove, <clears throat> rather refer to a Hebraism, to expiate sin, meaning to uh, satisfy the wrath that is due to the violation of the law. And so we see that Jesus is the sin remover. He is the one, the only one, that can remove the blot that sin creates. The only one who can remove the debt that sin creates. Think for a moment of silver. Some of us have had silver. I try to avoid it. I hear it's a hard thing to keep clean. Because the air tarnishes the silver. And you know, you can get your Ajax out and you can scrub it all you want and it's not going to remove the tarnish. There's only one thing that's going to remove tarnish upon silver. And that is silver cleanser, cleaner, whatever you call it. I don't know, I don't buy it. Okay? It's a good thing about being a pastor. You're not tempted to own those sort of things. Okay? There's only one thing that can remove your sin. Okay? Your good works cannot remove it. Your trying to be kind and tolerant and loving towards others cannot remove the guilt of your sin. Your putting money into the basket cannot remove the guilt of your sin. Lots of prayers will not remove the guilt of your sin. It must be taken away by Jesus himself. And it is only taken away as we receive him, as we trust in him, as we believe in his name, and he removes it because of his sacrificial death on the behalf of sinners. <clears throat> but we get to this word, world. What is John getting at here? Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ believe that, in fact, Jesus uh, died for every sinner who has lived at least since that time. They understand world to mean everybody. <clears throat> Within the context of John's gospel, I think there's a different understanding, or should be a different understanding of this. John's original audience, who I believe were Hellenistic Jews, and of course uh, John the baptizer is speaking to a completely Jewish audience, they thought, erroneously, because of their own pride, that the Messiah was coming for them and them alone. That all of the evil people known as the Gentiles were going to be destroyed by Messiah. And salvation was for them. They had forgotten, perhaps, that even during the Exodus, it wasn't just the Jews who were delivered out of Egypt, but there were this other group of people that tagged along, that joined them and became part of Israel. <coughs> and so what John is getting at is not this idea of everybody, but all kinds of people. We see this as well from, from that very same passage I referred to earlier in uh, John 11. <clears throat> in verse 52, it says this, that he would die not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. 
there's this idea that John begins to un- unfold for people is that there are Gentiles who are out there who are going to be brought into the true Israel through the work of Jesus Christ. They're gathered into one family by the work of Jesus Christ. We see that this is actually a fulfillment of what we find in Isaiah. Chapter 49, for instance, verse 6, this is talking, God is talking to this chosen servant, the servant of the Lord that is to come, the Messiah. He says, it is too light or too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring them back to the, uh, the, bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. And so God's plan was always much bigger than uh, the average Israelite's plan because it encompassed a larger number of people. We see this as well in Revelation when Jesus, uh, as the Lamb of God, is exalted in chapter 5 and they declare that it is from every tribe, every nation, every language that He has ransomed people. Not that He ransomed all of those tribes, nations, tongues, and languages, but He ransomed people from all of those things. And so, in a sense, there is a universal aspect to Jesus' work, but it's not a a uh, universal aspect without exception, meaning it doesn't include everybody. But it includes somebody from every group, if that distinction makes sense to you. <clears throat> and so we see that the sacrifice of Jesus is more than adequate to remove everyone's sin. Jesus can be said to be the Savior of the world. In the same way in which Augustine has famously said, <clears throat> talked about someone being a city's teacher. It doesn't mean that everyone was taught by that teacher, but he was the only teacher in town. And so Jesus, while not everybody's Savior, is the only Savior in the world. And so if people want to be saved, they must go to Him and to Him alone. Just as if you wanted to be taught in that town, you had to go to that teacher and that teacher alone. So there is only one Savior, one person who can remove your sin, and that person is Jesus. And so John the Baptizer, as well as John the Apostle, call you to trust in Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. I need to speed up. Well, I still have something to say here. Well, something to say with. Secondly, the Spirit anointed Jesus for his earthly ministry. The previous day, the one in which the priests and the Levites came and questioned John the Baptizer, one of the things that they asked him about was baptism. They said, "Then, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? It was a good question. And John didn't answer it. Now he answers it. Because now we see that he baptized specifically for a reason. He was sent by God. He was dispatched by God with a purpose, with a mission, 
not only to testify to the Messiah, not only to prepare the way for the Messiah, but he was also sent to baptize specifically so that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. He was going to be publicly made known through this baptism. That was how John would know who he was. Now, John may have met Jesus before. We knew, of course, when they were both in utero, utero, uh, their moms got together and John the Baptist leapt within the womb. We know that because they were uh, related. They may have interacted at other points in time. But the, he, so he may have known Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus was the Messiah. He did not really know until that time and when Jesus came to be baptized by him, which apparently was sometime between the inquisition by the priests and Levites and this moment when, when John speaks, Behold, there is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So John was given this sign... <coughs> to help him identify the Lamb. That sign is that he too would see the Spirit descend and remain upon the One who was Messiah. This too should bring us back to creation. For in verse 2 of Genesis 1 we read, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I think John the Apostle wants us to, to recognize that because the, the spirit that was there in, in beautifying creation was going to be here in the beginning and through the whole process of recreation. He who helped make everything is also going to help make everything new to remove that which sin has twisted and made ugly. <clears throat> And so Jesus' earthly ministry begins with an anointing by God's Spirit. This is significant. What does Christ mean? Well, it's the Greek word for the Hebrew, messiach, which means one who was anointed. Who was anointed in Israel? Prophets, priests, and kings. They were anointed with oil <coughs> to begin their ministry, their, fun- their, their office within the life of Israel, to represent uh, the Spirit being upon them, to enable them to fulfill their responsibilities. In a sense, it's almost like, uh, you know, it's not quite an inauguration, you know. The president or <coughs> member of Congress stands there, the, or a mayor even, <coughs> hand on Bible, promises to do these things, it's beyond that. Because this is about empowerment to do things. Not just a promise on the part of the one who holds the office, but it is really an empowerment for the office. And so in a little while, there's going to be three men down here. Men that we believe God has set apart to be elders and deacons in this church. And we're going to lay hands on these men. And what we're asking to do when we do that is for God to send His Spirit upon them to enable them (coughs) to fulfill the callings of the office. And so Jesus, who is our our prophet, 
who proclaims the way of salvation to us that it might be known. Jesus, who is our priest, who makes the way of salvation himself with his sacrificial death and continues to minister to us as a priest by his continuing ongoing uh, prayer for us. Jesus, who is our king, who subdues his enemies before us, and sometimes that means us. Okay? In conversion, he subdues us to himself in a kind and gentle way that we might walk with him and enjoy his fellowship. But he's still subduing the sinner that we are. Okay, and so uh, Jesus was anointed here as prophet, priest, and king to begin his earthly ministry. And so all of his ministry is going to be carried out in the power of the Holy Spirit. When you go to Luke's gospel, it's very clear. Because you read repeatedly, and in the, Holy, in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus did this. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus did that. John's is much more subdued in that respect. But he does say it this way. Not just that the Holy Spirit descended, but the Holy Spirit remained upon him. The Spirit didn't come, flitter for a while, so to speak, you know, because it came as a dove, and then go back up. The Spirit remained upon Christ for the fulfillment of the work of his ministry. And that's not just his teaching. That was not just his, uh, the performance of miracles and healings. But we see even in his death, Hebrews 9, verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice through the eternal spirit. Of course he needed the help of the spirit to willingly lay down his life, not in a quick moment as if he was in a war and there's a grenade and I want to protect my friends and jump on it, but no, as in I'm going to a cross. I'm going to a trial. I will be beaten and spit upon. I will be condemned. I will carry this cross for miles, and I will be nailed to it and die a death. A premeditated sort of thing, not an instinctual sort of thing. Not only was his death done through the eternal spirit, but in Romans 1, verse 6, we read, I think that's, well, sorry, verse 4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection of the dead, from the dead. <clears throat> and so we see, you know, throughout Scripture that the resurrection of Jesus is accomplished by all three members of the Trinity. Here, it happens to be Spirit. So he's raised, just as we will be raised by the Spirit, he was raised by the Spirit. John testifies further about Jesus that precisely because the Spirit rests upon him, remained upon him, abided with him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. There's a connection between these two things. As the one upon whom the Spirit remained or dwelled, Jesus is now able to give the Spirit to us. And so, we see that water baptism, not John's baptism, 
But water baptism continues. Christian baptism is different. It's not just the formula. Okay, you know, now we have the Trinitarian formula. But there's also this added aspect of it is meant to represent the baptism of the Spirit. All who believe in Christ receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 12, for instance. But this goes farther back. The promise of the new covenant. Exodus 36, that's not Exodus 36, Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Okay, that idea of a new spirit. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so, there's the promise in the new covenant that God will put his spirit within us. Jesus is the one who baptizes us with that spirit, not so that we can speak in tongues, That's not the point. But the point in Ezekiel is so that you walk in my ways. That you now have the power for obedience as well as the power for ministry. As Paul will talk about in Ephesians in particular, among other places. And so Jesus' earthly ministry is meant to be a pattern for our ministry in His name. He who worked by the power of the Spirit intends for us to work in the power of the Spirit. Not the power of the flesh. Not by trying to gut your way through it, but living in active dependence upon God the Spirit. For wisdom, for strength, for knowledge, all of these things. Power, energy. We need it desperately. It feels like as a dad who have two sons, my job description must mean the, the keeper of the batteries. Because I'm like, <clears throat> they're always asking me, Dad, new batteries. Just this morning, I'm like, you know, getting ready to come here. I'm not even dressed yet. <clears throat> I haven't even showered yet. Dad, batteries. Wait a minute, is that the same truck that you asked me about yesterday and we didn't have the C-cell batteries? And, you know, Isn't it great that <clears throat> as a minister, my job is not to change your batteries? Because you, in Christ, have the Spirit. I don't need to pump up my officers for ministry. My officers need to look to Christ in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I'm supposed to give them a charge and encouragement after we ordain and install them. Well, this is it, guys. You just you got it. Okay? We're going to be short on time, and already I'm short on time. And so uh, John calls us to trust in Christ, to pour out His Spirit upon us for life and ministry. Thirdly, this third endorsement, so to speak, Jesus is the eternally existing Word and Son of God. 
<clears throat> Jesus is the eternally existing Word and Son of God. John the baptizer bears witness to what he has seen. Okay, He's witnessed this. He's now going to testify to it. But we come, ac- <clears throat> come across a small problem. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm trying to catch my breath. That's the problem of bronchitis for me. The, the text that we read says, Son of God. That's consistent with uh, the Greek text that I, I normally use, the USB. But there is a Greek text called the SBL that instead of having son, has chosen. So it's not a spelling mistake. In Greek, they're two very different words. D.A. Carson is one who, oddly enough, from my mind, uh, <clears throat> embraces the second uh, the variant rather than the uh, commonly accepted one. So we have a problem. Does John declare him to be the Son of God or the Chosen of God? Chosen certainly does seem to fit with many of the texts in Isaiah speaking about the servant of God. For instance, in Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. So it's perfectly understandable from my perspective that John the baptizer could have said, my chosen, because something like Isaiah 42.1 could be right there in his mind, and it's completely consistent It's true. He is chosen. However, Son of God seems to fit John's gospel and some texts in Isaiah that see the servant as more than just a man. For instance, Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, okay, the tree's been cut down, all you got is a stump, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. So they're talking about the same person. The Spirit of the Lord is resting on both of these uh, mentioned individuals, so I, my guess is there's probably the same person. But he's talking about how <clears throat> he is both the, the root and the stump of Jesse, Jesse, of course, referring to the father of David, the great king. The Messiah was supposed to be the son of David. But Isaiah 11 indicates that he has existed mysteriously prior to David. Why does this matter? Why am I bothering to say all this when I can barely talk? Because there was one view that was put forward by a a man named Apollinarius. And what he said was that Jesus was an ordinary man, just like you and me. But at his baptism, something happened. At his baptism, he was adopted by God, and the Spirit of God came upon him. That's what Apollinarius teaches, or taught. He's dead now. I'm sure he recants his teaching now. <clears throat> or he's regretting he ever taught it. 
But it's, it's the idea of a, of a mere mortal sort of then exalted to a higher state so that he might serve as a savior. That is completely inconsistent with what John the Baptist says. Because remember, he says, <clears throat> he ranks or has higher prominence than me because he was before me. And so here's the significance of what <clears throat> John the Baptist is saying. Because he's using that same verb and the you know, exact identical case and everything else that we see in John 1 and John, uh, 1, 1 and 1, 2, referring to the word, John is essentially saying, there, the word of God, who was, the word of God who was with God, the word of God who is God, there he is. Look, the Word is the Messiah, and the Word is the Son. This is incredibly significant. Because we're getting a glimpse of who the real Jesus is. He's more than any man we ever encountered is. Not just in the way that, uh, you know, think of your favorite president, I'll pick George Washington. He's politically correct. Okay, no one's going to argue with George Washington. He was a great man. Okay? Greater than me. But he was not in a different sphere as me. He was just more accomplished than me and accomplished more than me. Jesus is of a completely different category because he's the eternal Son of God who was also the servant of God, who has come for the salvation of men. And so, John is arguing that Jesus has always existed as the Son of God, who now takes on flesh. The eternal Son humbles Himself and takes on the role of a servant, a chosen servant, to save sinners, as we see in Philippians chapter 2. The great condescension, the humiliation of Jesus Christ, which was rooted in His love for sinners such as us. So, whether you're someone who's inquiring about Christ or thinks you've got it, think you have it all figured out. Whether you're someone who's a brand new Christian or someone who is a mature Christian, 30, 40, 50 years in, there is more to Jesus than you understand. There's always room for us to grow in gospel knowledge. I'm a pastor, been a pastor for almost a decade and a half. I don't have it all figured out yet. And I suspect you don't either. We must sit under the Scriptures, not over the Scriptures, judging them by our own sense, by our own reason, but submit to them as the true Word of God that we must seek to understand. Perhaps, well, Heather, should we see here Jesus as the sin-bearing Son of God, who can give all who receive Him the Holy Spirit. 
So he takes from us our sin, gives to us the Spirit. Perhaps this sounds too good to be true or too difficult to comprehend, but it's not really about comprehending it. It's about trusting him as he is revealed to us in the Scriptures. Indeed, as many have said before, we do not understand to believe, but we believe to understand. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you for a Jesus who is greater <coughs> than we could ever imagine. Than the Jesus of our own design, the Jesus of our own understanding, the, the Jesus we would have painted. We thank you that he's so much greater than that. Help us to believe that which is said about him within these pages. To rely upon him as he is revealed to us in these pages. To believe what these words say about us, that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And that Jesus is the Savior we need. Father, help us who do believe to remember that we have been baptized in the Spirit. We drink from that Spirit who empowers us to live upright and godly lives, who enables us to say no to ungodliness and sin, who empowers us for ministry, whether we're an officer in the church or not. We thank You for all that You have done for us through Your Son. Help us to come to a greater understanding of this. Help us to grow in our gospel knowledge so that we indeed might grow in our gospel practice. And we ask this in the name of Christ, the eternal Son who took on flesh and bone as your chosen servant to save sinners. Amen.